Welcome to the CPA Advisory Show. I'm Jeremy Wells, and unfortunately, not with me as always today is my co-host Chris Hervishan. Chris is giving a talk up the South Carolina Society for CPAs, I believe. So, good luck on that, Chris. Uh, and looking forward to your return to the studio. But I am super excited today to uh, introduce someone that I've been following for a little while, and uh, really happy to have her in the studio with us today. And it's Dominique Molina. Dominique, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to meet you. Great to meet you as well. So Dominique, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're working on. I'm Dominique Molina. I'm a CPA with a lot of experience, but I'm embarrassed to tell you how many, so I won't be sharing that with you today. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> but um, I've been in this profession for a long time. Uh, got my start like uh, most CPAs do, uh, getting educated, getting my license, working for a large national firm, and um, then starting out on my own and running my own tax practice, which I still continue to do to this day. I focus in tax and advanced tax reduction. And um, I also lead the American Institute of Certified Tax Planners, and that's an organization that uh, provides education for tax professionals in the expertise of advanced tax reduction and how to implement it with your clients. And so uh, we have a licensing program to obtain certified tax planner and certified tax strategist licenses. It's an apprenticeship. And I've been doing that. We're in our 15th year. And uh, so I'm, I'm a tax geek all around. Even in my spare time, I like to uh, do things that are tax related. So I think my therapist has me on a regimen of trying to expand out and get into some non-tax things. There's always a tax angle, though. No matter what, there's always a tax angle. <laughs> Oh yeah, exactly. Awesome, exactly. good deal. So, okay, so a couple of things. Um, let's let's unpack this a little bit. Let's let's start off this this phrase kind of piqued my interest. Advanced tax deductions. What 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 are you talking about there? What I mean, it, it, there's all this on social media these days, especially some sites like TikTok, where there are all these secrets that your CPA doesn't know <laughs> or that the IRS doesn't want you to know. Is that what we're talking about? Or, or, or what do you mean here? Well, you know, that's sort of a, an attention grabbing headline of things that the IRS doesn't want you to know. Um, but really, it's not a secret. It's just a matter of, do you have the expertise? And so I like to explain it to lay people this way is just like we're very familiar and it's no secret in this country that our very, most wealthiest clients, taxpayers and companies, the Amazons, the Facebooks, the General Electrics of the world pay almost next to nothing in tax. And yet they're in tax court all the time with no reversals or rare reversals. So it's the same tactics that the big guys use. It's just that most tax professionals just aren't trained in this area of expertise. It's a specialty, much like lots of professions have specialties. So, for example, I recently had knee surgery and I'm not going to my primary care for that. I'm seeing an orthopedist. And uh, we have specialties in our line of work as well. And so uh, getting highly educated in that specific area of what legally can be done and uh, can be applied to everyday 
uh, small businesses as well. And so that's sort of what my mission is in life is to bring this information to the everyday small businesses that run this country and feed our economy, uh, much like the big guys do. Gotcha. Okay. So what kind of um, taxpayer then, right? Because it, it seems like there there are two ends of this pretty wide spectrum here. And, and from what I'm hearing you say, and what, what I also know from my own practice, it seems like on one end we have your relatively normal, simple 1040 type where there's a couple of W-2s, maybe they've got a couple of things that might get on the schedule A, but with the standard deduction, probably not even that, right? And so they might make a relatively lot right. of money. They might have a decent, you know, comfortable lifestyle, but as far as the tax return right. goes, it's just not that complex, right? And then on the other end, like you said, we've got giant right. C corporations, we've got the uber wealthy, that sort of thing. For the vast majority that are like somewhere in between, right? You know, they they they're they're self employed, mm -hmm. you know, or or they they own you know some some real estate, some rental real estate, something like that. Like what, what's going on there? How, based on your experience, based on the, on the tax preparers, the tax professionals that you've worked with, are we just missing a lot of stuff? Uh, is there stuff there that, you know, that experience alone or, you know, just working in a, you know, regional or local firm for a few years and then going out on your own, is there stuff that we're just never going to learn? We're never going to be exposed to. And, and therefore we're just, not ever going to be able to give full value to, to our customers? Or is it, is there really just that upper echelon of taxpayers that, you know, there are just some things that if you just don't make enough money, it's never going to be possible for you. Yeah. I think this is one of the things that I discovered pretty early on in my career. And uh, again, I'm going to be dating myself here, but I don't know if you remember the presidential candidate, Ross oh, yeah. Perot, and when Ross Perot was running for office, very, very wealthy person. This was pre-Elon Musk days, pre-Jeff Bezos billions. So he was one of the wealthiest people in the world. And again, very famously paid very little in tax and talked about that quite often. And I wanted to know why that was. How is that even possible? And the truth is, is that when we are working from a tax compliance standpoint, we have, we're viewing the data through a certain lens, meaning we are viewing this with the perspective of looking backwards in time and we're telling the story of what took place. And so really there's only two questions that you can ask yourself with that perspective in mind. And that is, did somebody qualify for a tax break or didn't they qualify for a tax break? And then based on that answer, we report it accordingly. With planning, it's a completely different perspective and we're viewing the data through a different lens. What we're saying is how can someone qualify? And so it starts with number one, familiarizing yourself with all of the breaks that are available. And there are hundreds of breaks. And by the time you start combining one break with two and three and four and five, we've got countless iterations of these different combinations of strategies. And so we are not 
trained in this initially, and it's not a requirement. It's not a minimum educational requirement to get into the field of tax compliance work, because if you think about it, we don't need to know that. And the IRS, frankly, doesn't care if we know about it or not, because they're not going to come along and they're not tasked with coming along and saying, excuse me, Mr. Taxpayer, you missed this break. Let us refund you, right? And so because of that, we are trained in how to reduce reporting errors. We are trained in compliance issues, you know, spotting uh, if somebody qualified or not. And so it is a definite specialty. And what I discovered through kind of pursuing Ross Perot's background was, you know, it's less about how much you make. In other words, you don't have to be wealthy to take advantage of these. It's just that we see the wealthy benefit from this because they've got the deep pockets to hire people that are solely focused in this area. And most accountants don't have that luxury. You know, most of most CPAs have um, high volumes of clients because we're frankly not getting paid enough to uh, make it worth our while. And so we take on huge volumes and that really limits the amount of time that we can put into examining the potential. And how can somebody qualify? Well, if they make these shifts in how they've organized their business, for example, or how they've positioned themselves. And uh, and so, yeah, it's really a combination of those two things, but it's kind of irrelevant how much money you make or if you're a high profile person or not. It's just that those those people tend to get better treatment because they pay for the better treatment. And, and I just think that's not fair. You know, if we are if this is a is an equal country where we're all viewed equally under the law, then it really shouldn't matter if I make a lot of money or if a little money uh, is my game. I should have equal access to the same laws. And the truth is we do. We just have to be properly educated on where to find those. Yeah, things. absolutely. And, and, and that raises an interesting point. So I've, I've been an enrolled agent for uh, a little over five years now, CPA for over a year. So, I, so I've taken all the exams. I've gone through the, through the study guides for those. I, I did all, mm -hmm. you know, I got the master's of accounting, took a few tax courses through that process. I, the, the amount of, actual tax planning tax strategy for for an actual taxpayer for a real person i feel like was mm -hmm. just a fraction of a percent of that entire process right like you know to to the right the, the special enrollment exams yeah i remember stuff about dealing with the irs i remember the difference between uh adjustments to income and deductions from income right those sorts of technical things from the right. cpa you know, studying and from the accounting courses, I remember, uh, you know, how to calculate adjustments to partner basis, things like that. Right. But, but almost right. nothing, if anything, really, in terms of just actual tax strategies, right? Like what never once through all that right. process, did we read the code? Did we read the regulations? Did we read revenue rulings or proclamation, you know, this sort of stuff. Right. So yeah. Is, should, right. should there be more of that in the, in the basic education process or 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 do you think this is by design well i i guess the answer to that question really depends on what you want to do professionally right 
because again, I think the educational um, missing component is just what career opportunities are available. And so perhaps if we were more informed about different opportunities that are available, say on the tax planning side, it might help students or those that are pursuing this career have an understanding that, gosh, you know, if I want to take my career this direction, I'm going to need some different education, right? Because if you think about it, we all get the same base level of education, whether we're going to be an auditor on the attest side and issue audit reports or other kind of attestation, um, or we're going to go into the tax industry. And I don't know that that makes very much sense if you think about right. it. We do have this emphasis now, um, I still keep referring to it as the new way <laughs> with the CPA exam, but they have loosened up those requirements to say, hey, if you're going to do a total tax track and you're not going to do any attest services, then here you need a, a slightly different um, uh, educational component, right? And you don't have to then get educated with audit uh, background. But but that's about it. There's really not nothing more that um, informs us of hey, you know, if I'm going to decide, for example, that I want to go the IT route and I want to work in software that helps from a tax standpoint, I might need to take this whole other track in terms of my education to better understand IT and how that works in terms of compliance and planning. Uh, and so I think uh, what is really missing is just the exposure to different uh, possibilities and, and directions of where you can take your career, and then what edu underlying education um, you'll need for that. And it's certainly not too late. You know, I think most of us, because this isn't the status quo, most of us end up getting educated in tax planning later on in our careers. And it's not to say that, you know, understanding basis schedules or the difference between adjustments and deductions isn't important. It 100% is, and I draw on that experience and education every single day in my career as a planner. But there's an additional education that comes on top of that that's, that's really what's needed to apply this in a different way. And it it definitely uses different skills. Uh, you know, this area I would say is much more creative uh, than it is just focusing on compliance. And I can say that because the majority of my beginning career, I focused strictly on compliance. And, uh, and so it does use a different part of the brain. It, um, and, and I would also say that most of us in this industry tend to be very analytically minded and sometimes that's not always comfortable to get into the creative because we're used to math always tying out. It either balances or it doesn't balance. And on the planning side, there's not that warm fuzzy at the end of the day that says green light, you're good. That green light comes at the end of a court case if that's the direction that, that the case takes, right? And so that's not always comfortable for everyone. And again, this isn't for everyone. So um, that was a long-winded way of saying, I think the education should be slightly different, but maybe just more on 
allowing us as um, either students or students of this business to better understand uh, what other career opportunities might exist. Yeah, that, that's an interesting point about uh, the 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 case or, or, or the, the position, right? It would start off with a tax position, right? And, and maybe this does mm-hmm. get some un, un, unwelcome, right? But maybe justified scrutiny from the service. And then maybe that turns into the next step. And then the next step, maybe you do find yourself in court. And, and I'm thinking, you know, you're, you're, your usual prepare, you know, I've always heard, right? You know, it, uh, unlike over on the audit side where, you know, they, they talk about uh, materiality, right? In tax, there's no such thing as materiality, right? But but right. what I'm hearing from you is that there that the tax code is not black and white. It's not, and, and, and I, I'm a believer of this as well, right? There is a lot of gray area. This is why we have positions. This is why so much of, you know, our professional mm-hmm. integrity and, and ethics is about finding and taking those positions this is one thing that bothers me with a lot of preparers that will, for example, come into, uh, you know, uh, uh, some of these Facebook groups or whatever is they, they want this black and white answer, right? It's, it's either this way or it's that way. My, right. my client either qualifies for this or they don't. Right. And, and they get, they seem to get frustrated right. when the questions start coming out, right? Well, you know, give us some more context, give right. us some more background because it depends, right? right. Every account's favorite answer. It depends. Yeah. Okay. So, for a tax yes. preparer, right? From that mentality of, right? There's no materiality in tax. I've got to do the right thing. I don't want to get my client in trouble. How do you start mentally mm-hmm. shifting from, you know, I, 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 the the worst thing in the world is for my client to get a notice because that means I screwed up somehow, right? How do we start shifting away from right. that mentality toward being advocates, taking positions and, and understanding that there's some risk involved with that and maybe we'll pick up some unwelcome, you know, uh, uh, review from the service. Yeah, I think you've hit on a couple of really good points that I'd like to highlight actually. And the first one is the risk component because it is a fa- it is a factor, absolutely. And uh, and so because of that, because there is more risk in this field, that's why you have to charge premium fees for this service because you are undertaking risk. And, um, and it's not to say that it's not a calculated risk. Personally, I'm very conservative. And what that means to me is that I don't take a position or a, a strategy that hasn't been court tested before. And the reason I take that approach is because when you understand how to read court decisions, it's a blueprint, basically, for exactly what the government is looking for to prove your position, right? And so um, you absolutely have to get paid for that. And so this is not similarly priced to a standard tax engagement, for example. However, on the other side of the coin, we're delivering huge amounts of value. You know, if someone didn't qualify for a tax break in the past, for example, and now because of the result of strategy, I'm putting them in a position through making some shifts that is going to reduce their tax by $40,000 a year. I'm not delivering $40,000 a year in savings from a typical tax compliance engagement either. So the risk and the reward are completely different in this line of work. Um, 
But so we get into, you know, how do you get comfortable with this? And I think a lot of it comes back to collaboration and confidence. And the more that you collaborate with other people, the more your confidence grows as your experience grows. And so you begin to rely on others' opinions less and less as you've seen more in your own career. And so uh, to me, collaboration is really essential because it's not always clear. It, even though we have a blueprint from the court, everybody's circumstances are different. And so when we're reading and, and we can just take something recent as an example, you know, everyone's been kind of infighting about the employee um, retention credit, right? And there's these mills that are out there and they're not really run by tax experts and they've kind of gotten into the business and they say, everyone qualifies for ERC and, and the way that we're getting them to qualify is by, um, you know, this partial shutdown requirement. Well, everybody can kind of get in there and give their own opinion about what qualifies as a partial shutdown under COVID, for example, but without the regs, and it really wasn't until the regs came out, we have specific examples that the IRS has given us that says, no, this is what a qualified partial shutdown is, and this is what it is not. And so you really have to have familiarity with that. And when you don't, or if you're in the earlier stages of your career, you have to have support and resources to guide you through that. And so whether that means you're working with somebody else in a firm that has more expertise than you do, and so that you can be mentored along, or whether you're using a community of experts so that you can say, Hey, Brian, you worked for the IRS at the audit in the audit department for this many years. What is the IRS looking for in, in this issue? And so those are really essential components because uh, without that insight and without the mentorship as you're gaining your own expertise, it is really difficult and you don't know until it actually gets tested and nobody really wants to go through that process. Yeah, I, I love that. I, I love that description of court cases as blueprints. They really are, you know, the 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 code and, and especially the regs can just get so difficult to read, right? I mean, like, if, mm -hmm. if you're just really feeling bored one evening, like pull out the 469 regs and try to <laughs> try to wade through that mess, right? right? But, you know, when you when you right, read a court right. case, right, wh whether it's a tax court case or a district court opinion, especially if it's on, you know, a pretty substantial, uh, you know, issue, you, you just... It, it's like a it's it's an opportunity right to really see some logic to really see a, a true essay right on this issue you know right. i'm always surprised when you know I, I talk to other practitioners that they they they've a lot of them they've just never had to they they've never wanted to read court cases and, and i'm i'm like it's right. a, it's a joy when i get when i get to jump dive into a court case yeah. and really like think about how you know, a, a true legal expert in, you know, in, in our country is, is reading and interpreting the same code and regulations that the rest of us are reading, but they, but they just read it differently and they structure it differently. I, 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 th I think the value there of, you know, taking a half an hour, 45 minutes to really read through that opinion can just boost your understanding of that whole code section or that whole regulation, right? Just 
just immensely. But anyway, no, I, I, I love that, that, that blueprint. The other thing is it really shows you like how to structure a tax question. That's another thing that, that I see oh, that, yeah. that's just fundamentally lacking, right. And, and a lot of tax professionals is just what, what is really at issue here? You know, what, what question are we trying to answer for the taxpayer and what are the, what are the, the essential details that we need to know to actually work toward an answer, right? Not just, I, I, I see right. a lot of questions that are either like one line and there's no context or it's just paragraphs of all right. this just extraneous detail and none of it's really <laughs> relevant to, to what's going on. Um, but right. yeah, I, I, I love that. Yeah. And then also the collaboration bit, right? Like, you know, it just reach out to some other practitioners that maybe have been in a similar situation here. Right. And I think sometimes that's just, some of it is human nature that we want to maybe keep our competitive advantage to ourselves, so to speak, or um, lack of time. Like, Hey, I'm just too busy. I don't have, I don't have time to help anyone else in the profession. And those are uh, certainly unpleasant characteristics of what we do. But if you think about it really, and we look especially at the numbers today, there is more business than all of us can handle, frankly. There's more demand than what we're actually able to provide. And when you look at the situation in that context, there's really doesn't need to be this um, competitive spirit amongst us because there's really plenty of business to go around. And what we're doing when we collaborate is really elevating the profession as a whole. And just like you were talking about, I think you bring up such a good point about even knowing how to ask a good tax question. That is a, um, that's a disadvantage that we're doing to ourselves or a disservice that we have in terms of our minimum education requirements to get into practice. We don't train on court cases. We don't train on tax research. We don't train on the regs. Where you find that level of education is typically in law school, if you're going to pursue that deeper, but obviously you don't need a law degree to go into tax. And so um, that leads to problematic performance. And if we really want to elevate the profession, we've got to be a resource to one another. And to me, I see it as that's just yet another reason why I need to be able to afford to have more time in my schedule so that I can give back. I've been given so much by this profession and I can't tell you the number of mentors I've had throughout my career. And I, I feel a responsibility to give that back as well. And if I can't afford to do that because I'm pulled so thin with my finances or with my volume of work, then that's a problem for me. Hey, it's Chris. Thanks for tuning into the show and we really hope you're enjoying it. If you like the show, please like and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you really like the show, please leave us a review and we'll read it on the air. If you have a service or an app that is tailored to accountants and you want to get in front of several hundred accounts that listen to this show every single week, send us an email at host at cpaadvisoryshow.com. Okay, let's get back to the show. 
let's push on that because a couple times you've mentioned either either not getting paid enough for the work that we're doing or you know you've got to charge premium mm-hmm. fees for what we are doing for our customers what is that what does that right. look like what what do you think of the typical business model for a tax firm for an accounting firm that specializes in tax right what, what is the typical business model there from your perspective mm-hmm. and what what works about that mm-hmm. what doesn't work about that and what are you advocating instead yeah, I think one of a, a big misnomer that we have is that we're actually using a consultative model in our profession, and we really aren't for the most part. Most practitioners are actually using a transactional business model. Transactional business models appeal to and are, are useful when you're selling a commodity, just a commodity being that lots and lots of people offer the same exact service, right? And so from a buyer's perspective, our buyers are basically price shopping us. That's the main um, category or filter that they're using to evaluate their tax advisor. And so as a result of that, we, we feel this need and this pressure to remain competitive with our prices. And yet what we are doing for people really requires requires a consultative approach. And in a consultative approach, you aren't a commodity. You're offering highly customized service. And if you think about it, that is what we offer, right? Because no two tax situations or accounting situations are exactly the same. So it's highly, highly customized, yet we're competing in a transactional way, and we're trying to apply that model to a service that really requires this consultative approach where we're, where we're building a relationship, where we're getting deeply familiar with the business and the taxpayer and their circumstances and where they're looking to go in their business and in life. And that's broken. That's really, really broken. I think the big disadvantage with the transactional model, obviously, is it forces us into this downward spiral of price uh, price negotiations where we're, we're trying to remain competitive and it becomes a race to the bottom, frankly. Um, and so as a result, because those prices are so low, the only way to make more money is to work with more clients and to take on more engagements. And it really quickly gets out of hand. And if, if you're wondering, if you're listening to this and wondering if that's true for you, just simply ask yourself one question. You know, if you only had 10% of the clients that you do today and made the same amount or even more, how would things be different for you? And how would they be different for your clients? You know, what would it change the level of service that you're able to give to those clients? And, um, you know, things have changed. Things have changed in this business. Taxes have gotten increasingly more complex. People's businesses have gotten more complex. When we look at the role the Internet has played in technology, you know, businesses are doing lots and lots of different things to make money. And each one of those different lines of revenue bring different tax treatment, different tax issues. Are they subject to sales tax? Are they subject to state tax? Which states are they subject to? So you just think about the complexity there and you go, wait a second, 
we cannot afford to be pricing our services the same way that we priced them in the early 80s or the 70s because things are not the same. And yet there's been very little change in terms of how we're pricing and what our prices actually are. And, uh, and so it puts this tremendous um, strain on the business, even though we might want to w- use a, a, a consultative model. Frankly, most of us can't afford to do that. And as a result, the service level suffers. We're missing things constantly. And the, the bottom line effect actually is that there's, we are losing people in this profession. More people are retiring than are entering the profession for the first time uh, ever consistently. And if we're not careful, uh, we're going to end up extinct. And uh, that's not a good situation. So we've got to make some changes seriously. Let's get a little tactical then. Let's say you're dealing with, I mean, we Mm -hmm. we can just use a real simple case of like a solo firm owner who is, you know, used to doing, Mm -hmm. you know, several hundred tax returns. Most of them are, you know, fairly straightforward 1040s where a lot of them just come back year after year and that sort of thing. And so it is very transactional, right? Whether they realize it or not. But they've decided, look, I'm burning out. This isn't right. I'm not making enough money. I want to, I want, I want something different. Right. right? What's the, what's the first thing they need to do? Right. Because they, because some of the objections that usually come up is that won't work for my clients. That won't work for my firm. I don't know if I can, you know, if I'm capable of doing that. So what's the first step to get them over that hump of all the imposter syndrome of all the market fears, all that kind of stuff? How, Mm -hmm. how, How do we get over that and start making our way toward that consultative model? Obviously, my my preference and what I love to do is on the tax advisory services side. But the bottom line is for everybody listening is that you really need to take an inventory of what is it that you enjoy doing? What do you love most about what you do? And if the answer is I love doing compliance, I love the puzzle I like putting the right numbers in the right boxes. There's certainly nothing wrong with that. I love that. (laughs) That's why I got into this business to begin with. Um, We have to find a better way to automate and use technology for that automation wherever we can so that we can try to improve our profit margins so that we can afford to switch more toward, toward a consultative model. If that's not the kind of thing that floats your boat, then really examining, I I would say another really popular uh, thing that people love to do is the relationship piece. They love to help people. They love to get to know their clients. They love to be a resource to people. They love to be that first call that someone makes, whether it's a straightforward tax question or all the other kinds of questions we get asked in this business. Somebody called me to ask how they make bail one time. And I thought, that's not in my job description, but they trust us for a lot of things. And when they don't know who else to call, they call us. And so if that is the piece that you love about this, find a way to create an advisory um, uh, service around that piece. You know, what in there do you offer that really adds quantifiable value to someone's situation? 
And so that may not be as obvious with a straightforward 1040 client, for example, but with a business owner, it might be, you know, helping them better understand their books so that they can make decisions that change the profitability of the business. And so that's easy enough to measure, right? We can see at the start of this uh, time period, you were making X and now you're making Y. And I'd like to think that I'm responsible and helpful in that delta that's there. Um, and so then building some sort of advisory service around what it is that you love to do. For me and for those that I work with through the Institute, we've built that advisory services around the tax planning engagement. And we do that because it's easier to quantify the value that we're able to contribute to in that scenario. And when you're doing that, it really makes it much easier and palatable for people to get behind the idea of an investment in their business that produces this tangible return. Uh, in the form of reduced costs. Um, but that's really what we're after here is you have to transform the service that you're offering into more of a uh, consultative type service than we might see with then a transactional um, service like return preparation. Now, you mentioned uh, automation and software. Now, mm -hmm. I I know, mm -hmm. I, I think I've seen some writing, maybe some speaking by you lately on the, the use mm -hmm. of tax planning and tax strategy software, right? And there are a few products that over mm -hmm. the last couple of years have, have been out on the market, have gotten, um, they, they, they seem to be coming more and more prevalent. And I see a lot of tax uh, practitioners, tax professionals asking about them, thinking that they can start implementing them mm -hmm. as a way to start as sort of a gateway to offering these advisory services. What, what do you think of tax planning software, tax strategy software? Can I, can I just load a PDF of last year's tax return and get the strategies? And now I'm a tax advisor and I'm a tax strategist for my customers. Or is there still more to it than that? Yeah, so the simple answer is no, you can't do that yet, at least where we're at. And and thankfully so, right? Because if we're using this as a way to work more consultatively and be more profitable and be able to afford to offer better service to our clients, then we would be competing with software if it was possible to do that. And if it were truly possible to do that, this would already there would already be a TurboTax version of that that people could upload their own tax return to and boom have their own plan, and so that would be uh, we would be cannibalizing our own industry if that's what were happening. Now it's a tool, and just like our tax prep software is a tool that I can't do without, um, we can't do without tax planning software either because we need the technology to allow us to do the analysis. I don't want to spend all my time with a pencil and paper ledger comparing by hand, right? And so because of that, I use technology to, to automate that part of the process that offers the least amount of value. The computer is certainly capable of crunching the numbers, running the tax calc, so that I can then use it to input my ideas and we're illustrating those ideas so that we can see the impact. So I was saying it's a tool, right? It's a tool that I can't do without, but it will not do the work for me. You, you still need your expertise. And I, and I really think that we are 
quite a long ways, even though ChatGPT is really cool. I use it every day. <laughs> um, it's not there yet in terms of um, understanding the nuance of things. And that's a very human thing at, at this point in time with our technology. And so I'm happy about that because it makes me more valuable, that more valuable to, to our clients. But um, it can't certainly can't replace judgment, the understanding of nuance. And, and tax laws are complicated. They're sort of written in layers and they're reference points in multiple parts of the law that you have to be able to understand and then go out and, and get that piece of it. So just like you were saying earlier, Jeremy, that, um, you know, people have trouble even coming up with the right question to ask. So does technology. And if you don't know the right question to ask, that makes it less likely that you're going to be able to really recommend something that, that will pass muster. So it does take the educational um, requirement to really understand what's going on so that you can adequately use the tool, right? It's just like my clients can't walk into my office and sit down and use LACERT to prepare their own tax return. Um, they also can't come in and use my tax planning software to create their own tax plan. Yet having uh, the expertise under my belt, I know how to come in and use my software effectively to um, allow me to do the analyses, which is what I get paid to do is to think and analyze so that I can understand what's going to work and what's not going to work. And through process of elimination, really come down to uh, a set core of recommendations that we can implement with our clients. Yeah. And, and you mentioned the tax law being complex, not only is it complex, but it seems to change. <laughs> and it seems like it's changing more oh, yeah. often. Right. Um, and, and in fact, on oh, top yeah. of that, uh, pretty soon we're going to have some sunsetting of tax cuts and jobs act, which was itself mm -hmm. some pretty significant changes. So yeah, you know, how, how do we not right. only take into account the complexity, but you know, when we're, when we're talking to, our our clients, our customers, because they're watching the news, and depending on which network they choose to watch, they're they might be hearing the same story, but they're hearing it in different ways. You know, I, th this is another uh, sort of set of questions I, I see a lot. Is it's it's either some version of you know a client heard that they can do this. Are they, you know, is the client right? Mm -hmm. Do I, you know, am, am I the one that's out of the loop here? Or they they heard it in a such a way um, that they think it's reality when at best maybe it's just, you know, some proposal or some soundbite from a member of Congress or something like that, right? So, you know, how do we stay on top of not just the and from a planning perspective right because you know we're planning maybe mm -hmm. a year two three years out right how do we stay on top of not just the current law but you know what law might look like three five ten twenty years from now right i've got i've got clients that are in their late right. 20s early 30s and you know it, i go back and forth right like do do i you know when it comes to things like retirement contributions right versus uh you know relying mm -hmm. on something like social security right when it's like you know i i right. i, I want to do the right thing by you but 
you know, nobody knows what taxes are going to look like 10, 20, 30 years from now, much less next right. year. Right. So, you know, how do we, how do we take the time right. aspect and, and the variability that we've seen over the last few years in tax law, how do we try to, or, or can we, right? Like, is, is it, is it just a futile attempt or can we try to make some sense of this, not just for ourselves, but for our clients as well? Yeah, I think that what you've described, number one, I call it the TikTok phenomenon, right? It's that everybody's talking and there's a lot of noise and it's how do you cut through that noise to understand what's true and what's not true. And on the political side of it, it's when is when does it become true? Because you hear these things debated. And so then it's do we take that debate and then do something with it to prepare someone or do we have to wait until it's final? And the truth is we have to wait until it's final because until that is signed into law, it's just talk. It's just noise. How do we sift through the noise on TikTok? That's a tough one because people can be pretty convincing and you hear it enough times and suddenly I'm seeing seasoned tax pros start to say, but no, that's the rule. No, it actually isn't the rule. And, and no amount of people repeating it makes it true, right? So it's all the more uh, reason to structure your business in a way so that you absolutely can continue to get educated. It's never been as bad as it is right now in terms of the enormity of the changes. And that is required of us. But that's the inherent problem with our current pricing, right, is that it doesn't necessarily afford us the opportunity to just continually take classes all year long. There's no built-in mechanism with our current pricing structure to allow us to get paid for that training. And we really have to. Without the training, we're incompetent. And uh, I've, I've heard uh, lots of different tax pros, you know, when TCJA came out uh, at the end of 2017, going into tax season, you know, it was past very last minute. Some changes were retroactive, some were, you know, immediate. And yet, as we entered tax season, there's this enormous, complete reform of tax and there are tax pros going, I don't have time to learn that right now. I just got to get through season. And then in the summer, I'll try to catch up, right? That's not okay. I totally understand. I understand the squeeze that we're in. And our pricing structure doesn't allow for us to deviate from that practice, right? that has to change. It has to, we are doing people a disservice. And now we get into, it's not just, Hey, did we miss an opportunity and leave money on the table? It's no, we're, we're outright committing malpractice if I don't know the correct application of something. So that has to change. It absolutely has to change. And all the more reason to be working in a more consultative style because it is always changing. And then you add in the fact that businesses are always changing. So out of my clients, one day to the next, their circumstances are changing. The business revenues are going up and down. They're hiring, they're firing, they're adding new ways of making money. They're adding new technology. They're spending money. You have to be working proactively to stay on top of it. And our current pricing structure, if we follow the traditional model, 
doesn't allow us enough time to do that. And so, you know, as we're getting ready to sunset on a lot of these provisions, this is all a need for planning. Planning is not a one-time thing that you then have this map for the rest of your life and business and you follow it and you're done. It constantly needs to be updated in real time. And if you can't afford to work in that fashion, you have to find a way to incorporate it if you want to be able to offer planning because frankly, you'd be doing your, your clients a real disservice. And I think it would be unethical to do it that way. Yeah. And, and, and on that, on that point of unethical and I, w- I want to pivot a little bit here um, because you also have a mm-hmm. podcast and I, I've listened to maybe the first half uh, of it or so. And, and I'm, I'm a bit intrigued mm-hmm. by it because it, it, it's, it shows us what can happen if you come into this, uh, unlike we were talking about at the beginning, where you're trying to find that gray area, you're trying to make those positions that you think will work, even if they, you know, subject you to a little extra IRS scrutiny, you, you've got some, some justification from, you know, what's in the court, what's been, what's gone through the courts, this sort of thing. But what you're talking about on this podcast is very different from that. So tell us about the podcast and tell us about mm-hmm. what got you interested in the topic of the podcast and made you decide to start that podcast? Yeah, I think it's necessary to reiterate what I said at the top of this interview, and that is that I'm a tax geek all around, and I even spend my spare time (laughs) getting into tax. But um, I have a new podcast that's out. It launched at the beginning of the year, and it's called Tax Crime Junkies. And it takes a true crime focus and combines that with tax. And each episode, we look at different tax crimes or tax adjacent crimes. We tend to see things like money laundering and wire fraud sometimes end up in uh, in being handled by criminal investigations in the through the IRS as well. And uh, it's just fascinating. I I love to read court cases. I'm just a geek that way, and so. This is a passion project of mine. There's no other purpose other than to have fun and entertain. And uh, if you're a fan of true crime or of tax, you should check it out because it's uh, we have some pretty interesting cases that we cover there. Um, and it, it helps. It helps to understand, again, like going back through the legal process to understand what it takes to build a position, to build a case. And not only build the case, but prove it. You know, um, our, is witness testimony evidence? Absolutely. But if that's the only evidence I have, and I'm in front of a tax court judge, and the only evidence I have to stand on is the taxpayer testimony, well, the judge has the authority to determine if it's credible or not. And everybody has a bias in testifying untruthfully. So for the most part, they're going to discount that the value of that type of evidence. So you always want to be thinking about how you can bolster your case and where this sort of intersects with planning is building a good case. It's that whenever I'm working on a tax plan, I'm building a case from the very beginning. And that's not something I have the luxury of doing if I'm doing just a tax return for someone because I don't have enough time to do that. I'm not required to do it by law, certainly, but 
I'll give you an example <laughs> that one that everyone can relate to, you know, deduction of auto. A lot of people deduct their auto, especially if they're self-employed and, and a business owner. And when in two years, when we see the unreimbursed employee expenses come back, we'll see the auto come back as well. But, you know, you're supposed to maintain a log of your miles that you drive and where you're going and who you're meeting with and what is the business purpose and when was it and what were your odometer readings. And I would say there's a good amount of people out there that don't actually keep the log. When I'm planning, I'm looking at the logs and I'm checking in throughout the year because I want to make sure that not only are they following a plan that gives them access to every available break, but they can support that claim if they were ever to be examined. And I can do that when I'm well paid to do that through a planning engagement, for example. And so um, I see that as part of a good plan is making sure that you can prove it. And again, going back to the software discussion, that's not something right now that software does. Software doesn't tell you what kind of documentation is allowed or what the rules of evidence are and how do you get that into court. That's where your expertise comes in. And um, that's how we show our value to our clients. One thing that I, I see a lot is when it comes to uh, documenting expenses and the you know you, you'll you'll see a response oh Kohan rule right just you know it, it just estimate yeah. it well you know yeah. the the whole question was about transportation expenses or lodging expenses or one of these things right. that you know has its own specific right. documentation rules that Kohan doesn't apply to right and so again it comes back to right. you, know, you can you can know the rule you can know the exception to the rule but if you don't know the context you don't know which one you should be looking at. And that's, that's just an experience yes. thing. That's a, yeah. So yeah, there's a, the... yeah. And the context is something as of yet, we don't see AI necessarily being able to, to apply. And um, that's scary too, because um, AI is really good at lying. So I don't know if you've tried getting lies from chat GPT yet. <laughs> Um, very convincing I, lies or hallucinations. <laughs> uh, I think it's a fine line sometimes between, the, between the two, right. Yeah. Uh, you know, of course I, I, I yeah, seen the headlines yeah. about the, uh, the attorneys, what this was a few months ago that got in trouble for submitting paperwork to the court that was full of all kinds of citations to court cases that never actually happened <laughs> that, that chat GPT exactly. came up with, right. Um, you yeah. know, but then on the other hand, yeah. I've, I've talked to some uh, practitioners that are in our mutual circle who say, you know, they've used it to, for example, write notice responses back to IRS and, you know, it actually did a decent job, sure. right? You know, so uh, yeah, like oh, earlier absolutely. in the year, it seemed like yes. ChatGPT was fine if you're using <laughs> it for you know, relatively low stakes things like marketing materials or, you know, how to, how to make an email sound a bit softer, you know, to a client or something, not so abrasive, those sure. kinds of things. But it seems sure. like now we're getting to a point to where maybe we can, we can start to load it up with some little bit higher value tasks again still we need we need the contacts yeah the data the data processing is incredible i i wouldn't say i'm an excel whiz by any means i've been using it since it came out but um you know even asking for help constructing formulas or organizing data in a way in excel or google sheets that uh, can make it more useful to me is such a time yeah. saver 
And so when we get into, again, like what are those higher value services that we offer? Clients don't care how long I spent sorting and looking at their data, yeah. right? So if I can get that done in moments through AI, that just frees me up to spend time on things that do create more value. And, and that's where I really see uh, technology being helpful in its current stage for us in accounting. Absolutely, absolutely, good deal. Well, we're we're bumping up on time. Let me uh, ask you. So the the uh, the institute talk a little bit about that. Um, you know who who's right for that? Who should be looking into that? You know why would they be looking into that? And uh, if somebody's interested in getting in touch with you and, and finding out more about what you're working on or, you know, how uh, how can they they can just be a, a better uh, tax advisor, tax planner, tax consultant, as opposed to, you know, maybe just a tax uh, preparer. Uh, you know, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, I think the best uh, solution for all the things you listed is just go to certifiedtaxplanners.com. It's the homepage for the Institute. You'll find free resources that are there, webinars, um, information about tax planning, everything tax planning. Even if you're, you've stumbled on this podcast and you're not in the tax business, but you want to know how you can save money, you can still find it on that website, certifiedtaxplanners.com. And um, I talked about tax crime junkies. You can find that where any where you get any of your podcasts. You can also go to uh, taxcrimejunkies.com. And I love uh, social media for connecting in terms of really helping to collaborate and make this profession a better place. And so the best place to find me is LinkedIn. And just uh, look up my name, Dominique Molina, and you should find me there. I have, a, I have a group that I run uh, on LinkedIn, and we collaborate and do a lot of discussion there. Uh, but the, those are some of the simple ways and places to find me. Otherwise, you'll find me with a nose in, uh, in some court transcripts somewhere, uh, Jeremy, and uh, that's not always easy to find me in that place. So look for the places I'm easy to find. Good deal. Awesome. Well, Dominique, it's been uh, fantastic. Thank you so much uh, for being on the show and really appreciate you stopping by. Yeah, thanks. This is fun. Good deal. Thank you. Hey, it's Jeremy. Thanks for listening to the CPA Advisory Show. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others. Leave a rating and write us a review. We'll probably read your review on the air too. To catch all the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at CPA Advisory Show. If you have a topic or guest you'd like to hear on the show, let us know by emailing host at cpaadvisoryshow.com. Thanks again. <laughs>